Okay. So, uh, Robert, good to see you again. We've been chatting about several things, um, including about practice. You were mentioning that some days you feel like a nut and some days you don't. Yep. Yep. Okay. Uh, the best kind of nut. You know, sometimes it's a walnut, you know, a great walnut. Mm -hmm. And other days it's like a nut in the madhouse, you know. <laughs> All right. So, um, basically, you can see that our culture um, is designed around um, a few make people making a whole lot of money off of the efforts of a whole lot of people. And to do that, we have to keep them working. That in fact, the whole idea of a slave shop or a sweatshop is that uh, the, the bosses can keep people working and working and working and working. Uh, long days, no days off. That in fact, in very, very ancient times or in ancient cultures is where the whole idea of having a day off occasionally like once every week or uh in, in fact the whole idea of a week and seven days actually comes from the adaptation of the moon cycles so that uh uh some days it's uh if you're going to keep the week according to the moon then occasionally a, a week has to have eight days and that um when even the Beatles were talking about eight days a week i don't think that they were talking about the fact that in asia the week has to do with the uh the, the lunar cycle that in fact when um uh thai people or asian people come to the united states they immediately adopt from the um from the lunar cycle into the uh, easier to work with seven days a week. But the point that we're making here is, is that not every day is the same and that it is exploitive of our culture on the individual to think that everyone is going to be the same every day and everyone is up and capable of work. Get up out of bed and go to work. You're not sick get up and go to school. This is this is the mentality that we have developed in our society. But uh, the one who is telling you to get up and go to school is the one who is expecting to make benefit out of the fact that he's gotten you to get up and go to school or get up and go cut the grass or whatever it is. And so one of the derogatory words that's often used in our language is, is that, oh, He's lazy. What actually the word lazy means is, is that someone is too smart or too wise to be exploited. Hmm. That in fact, human existence from very, very early time is uh, very much like um, animals. The humans have been animals, just like animals have been animals, and all, and you, uh, except when the human bosses come around, um, animals don't work. 
Look at your average group of alligators, whether they're in an alligator pond in Africa or in an alligator pond in a zoo. Alligators tend to just hang out. Yep. <clears throat> waiting yeah. for an opportunity for a meal. Yeah, I've two things you'll enjoy. So one is a quote from Bill Gates. He said, if you give me the chance to hire a hardworking person or a lazy person, all other things being equal, he'd hire the lazy one because the lazy one will find the more efficient way of doing something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the other quote, the other little fact for you is there was a famous psychologist, Robert Sapolsky, and he went out to, um, to Africa to study baboons. And he found that the average baboon... He could have gone to South Carolina to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. I was, I was in South Carolina, I know. But go ahead. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so, so, so he went there, he studied them, and he found the average baboon works. And by work, he means like they're hunting, foraging, this and that, mm-hmm. four hours a day. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the time, they spend hanging out, you hanging know, out. you know, having fun, you know, eating, drinking, you know, whatever, you know. And so they work less than we do, and we're the superior civilization, you know. So that's according to a biased opinion. Yes. All right. Well, if you think about it way, way, way back when, before uh, human civilization, humans lived just like those baboons. That, in fact, in hunting gathering, it looks like that uh, the the kids and the women would go out gathering and they would gather for about an hour or so, find some nice stuff, take it back to their camp. While the men went out occasionally, uh, the the older boys and uh, the men would go out after some kind of big game. And if the game was big enough, they they <laughs> wherever the game was killed, they invited the whole troop to move there. This is what called uh, the original reason for nomadic tribes was not because they went someplace to find food. It's that when they found it, that's where they lived. Hmm. And so, uh, like, if you've got a mastodon, why drag that mastodon anywhere? You killed it right here. Let's cut it up and let's eat it right here. Sure. Okay, so this is how it happened. And that, that if they killed a, a wildebeest or a mastodon or whatever like that, then some of the meat would rot before they ate it. And so they learned to dry food and whatnot like that um, to preserve it. Uh, But basically, a kill would last for a week. So they'd go out in the morning, they'd kill something, and then they didn't have to work for a week. This is how humans and every one of us in our society can live like that. If we live simple and easy, we could live cheap. People do that. And uh, we can live well. They have the idea that um, about poverty levels, I think that much of what poverty really is, is stupidity. Stupidity and greed. And actually, when we think about stupidity, we can think of it as, in fact, ignorance. And there you go, the second noble truth. Poverty is dukkha only when it's full of greed, ill will, and delusion. 
But if poverty has no delusion about it and it has no greed about it, then poverty is wonderful. But our society doesn't teach that at all. No. It teaches, oh, since you've got so much greed and you've got so much uh, um, um, ignorance about it, we can put you to work. And that's how this society is built. And the whole idea is, is then people are not taught to pay attention to how they feel. They're not taught to look at the cycles that we go through. They're taught, in fact, by the words that I just used. You're not sick. Get up and go to school. Right. I've heard that (laughs) more than once. (laughs) Right. And they try to condition you for 17 years, and you still don't want to do it. It's just not, not our nature. It's not our nature. We actually, the society, exploits us to go against our nature. You've probably heard this many times also, and that is is that voters vote against their own best interest. Yep, every election. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay, for, so for every not, topic. Not only do they vote every two or every four years against their own best self-interest, they get up out of bed out of their own uh, against their own best self-interest, and they go to work against their own best self-interest. And they behave throughout the day against their own best self-interest. This is basically what we mean by uh, the waking up process. Now, I know that they've got a new word in, in, uh, in America called woke. And I don't know really what that is, but it uh, probably came about from the concept of Buddha or to awaken. But basically, um, the word woke in, in America, I'm not quite big figured out what it means yet, but I think that it means just simply not Republican. Well, it, it means a little more than that. It means uh, kind of progressive, you know, and it means um, it's not simply not Republican. It's progressive, and it mm. also connotes like being really interested in racial justice and these kinds of things and, you know, environmental stuff and all of that it's kind of like uh more far left you know than it is just center left um generally speaking okay in a way you could you could think of it like this i've talked to students uh times talking about the fact that a really really big ship doesn't have brakes even rowboats don't have brakes boats don't have brakes which means you kind of got to watch where you're going so that you can steer. And I think that this whole concept of woke is basically that a few people on that big uh, tanker of uh, society are beginning to wake up to see that this society's ship is heading into dangerous territory and somebody ought to get up to the helm and change the direction of the ship and nobody's doing that yet. <laughs> nobody's actually yeah. got their hand on the on the wheel to uh, to steer this ship of state out of the dangerous territory that it is heading into right now. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's. I'm oh, sorry. But sorry. really woke, uh, uh, the awakened one is would have already changed the steering. But in that, in this sense, um, the woke 
are only awake to social ills that they're doing nothing about when they don't recognize that those same social skill uh, ills that they see in all of society are actually within their individual's own mind. And they're yes. not woke to that yet. They're woke to society's ills, but they haven't woken up to the fact that, <laughs> uh, as Pogo said, you know, the very fact, we have seen the enemy and he is us. Yes, yes, and that's actually <laughs> part of the issue in American politics is uh, many people identify with the political party performatively and culturally. They don't mm -hmm. actually think things through, you know, and you see that on every level of the political spectrum from, from as far left as you can possibly get to as far right as you can possibly get. People mm -hmm. identify for reasons that have nothing to do with clarity of thought. Rare people will have some clarity of thought very rare, but they identify because this is the culture they consume, this is the culture they're a part of. Like, you know, a big, like, woke thing to do in America over the racial uh, justice riots, the George Floyd riots, you know, over the summer, was to replace your social media profile with a black square, you know, which, you know, I mean, it, it's nice that people are raising awareness to this, it's a good thing, but, you know, if all you're doing is changing your profile picture to a black square and you have no solutions for anything, you know, you don't understand the problems, you're just doing the black square to fit in with everyone else, you know, mm -hmm. that's not real woke in my opinion, but it's considered woke in quotation marks, right? So, I, I, I yeah. understand. That's interesting because if you do not yeah. put up a photo or an avatar, uh, then it will have, let us say, a silhouette. Yes. Yeah, right. And now people are actually not using the silhouette, which would be the wokest thing to do. The wokest thing to do is to do nothing at all. <laughs> but they're saying woke, it means I've got to go find yeah. some black square someplace to plug that in. Well, that sounds like just a lot of work. <laughs> right. So I can look good to all of my friends, like I'm a good person. You know, and, and that's a big part of the issue with the, the wokeism today, and I live in a woke capital of the world in New York City, you know, it's very, you know, progressive here in the politics, and and um, and it's funny, because I'm from Seattle, which is even more progressive than New York, so mm -hmm. as a result, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of libertarian myself, <laughs> you know, and kind of uh, just leery in general of progressivism because I've seen it just go way off the rails in, in Seattle and in uh, much less in New York, but to some degree in New York. But if I, I'll tell you this though, if I was from Carolina or Texas, I'd probably be a progressive. <laughs> it's just, that's, it's just, I, I can see in wherever I am, I often will see the, the contradictions, you know. Maybe that's mm -hmm. part of being Jewish, you know, is you just tend to be an outsider, you know. We're out the outsiders. You know? Right. While you were talking about that, I was thinking about um, the possibility of a new political party. And the name of the political party is the Comedian Party. Why? Because politics is a joke. And yeah. so the comedian party would be advertising people don't vote. <laughs> sure. 
Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that uh, uh, that just large by the millions and millions of people just don't vote? They already but, do. Well, no, I'm talking about those that are voting now. Yeah. By the hundreds of millions, or not, not that's that's a little grandiose, but by the tens of millions <laughs> that people just stop voting. So, for instance, in New York State, uh, well, I don't know. Uh, let us say nationwide. This last election, they had an out, uh, uh, a large number of people, 80 million versus 75 million. I imagine they come in now with a new election and it's like 21 million against 19 million. And 100 million people who voted in 2020 just don't vote anymore. Wouldn't it wouldn't be the the powers that be wouldn't be happy about that? But it's funny. You yes, say that because, but it would get worse. Yeah. It would get worse. You see, not only would the people not care and not vote, but a whole lot of politicians recognizing that they were not even if they got elected into office would not have any power because nobody cares. Then, in yeah. fact, this is what happens in a benign government. What I'm talking about is, is the reason so many people voted was because you had a whole lot of people who cared because they had skin in the game, they had money on the line, they had uh, uh, a reason to vote because they didn't like what was going on. The Republicans didn't like the Democrats because they've been taught to be racist and hatred, and the Democrats were completely freaked out about how stupid the Republicans have gotten. And so you had a really, really huge election, right? Okay, just the opposite of that. Imagine that most of the people don't care anymore. In that regard, that would mean that the government itself was kind of getting benign. It wasn't, you know, uh, people don't care anymore, which means now the government is doing pretty good. This is exactly what happens with politics in Thailand is that people go for years and years and years and there's no issue and there's no trouble or whatever like that. And one little thing comes up and all of a sudden the whole crowd goes, Oof, and they solve the problem and then they go back to sleep. So this is really what politics should be like. But in American politics, it is one disaster after another after another with every election. Well, and because of that, yeah. you have a whole lot of people voting one election after another after another because the problems that they voted for never got fixed. If uh, So you can say that possibly if Biden does a really good job of, of pacifying the crowds, then nobody will vote and the Republicans will rush right back in because they're the yeah. ones who are unhappy. It's always the unhappy ones that put in the most effort. You well, get yeah, something you saw done. That this election and last election in both cases. Mm -hmm. But but two comments. One is the comedian party. It's funny you mentioned that because there's a very famous comedian in England, uh, Russell Brand. You've probably yes, I know know heard him. of him. And uh, he actually, in one of the elections, I don't remember how long ago this was, maybe like five years ago or something, he was telling everyone not to vote. So he mm -hmm. was a comedian doing exactly what you were saying. So I thought that was kind of funny. But the other thing I was going to say was um, was uh, there was a Democrat running. I think his name was Tim Ryan or something like that. He was like single digits, you know, didn't go anywhere. But one thing he said that was great is is that 
he was running for president because he didn't want anyone to have to think about who the president was anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. But that, that's a great thing. You know, I, I think, you know, that's the way it should be. And as someone that, you know, believes in, you know, localism, you know, I think power mm-hmm. should be devolved to localities as much as possible, taken away from government bureaucracy, centralized in localities. That's what I well, believe. a really, really brilliant society would take power away from anybody who tries to get it. Yeah, yeah, no, and Gandhi was an anarchist, you know, and he, he believed in anarchism, you know, ultimately for India. That was his ultimate vision. I, I don't think we could, as a That's society, what I just was talking about. Yet. That was the direction that I was going. When people yep. stop voting, what that means is ultimately those people who used to vote and now don't vote anymore are kind of okay with whatever the government does. So if the government is in fact benign or if the government is um, actually doing something good, wholesome, valuable and useful, then the people don't have to do anything anymore. This is what Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa talked about in his book on Dhammic Socialism. And uh, the problem would be the use of the of the terms uh about whatever form of government and whatever term we use somebody's going to get really really uptight about it but uh in the sense of marxism or uh a, a dictator a despot a king uh or even um an elected president <clears throat> like putin but in any case it doesn't matter uh what form of government or what uh, uh, the guy is called. The point is, is that if it's a benign dictatorship or a benign Marxist government or benign socialist government or benign democracy, then that's the right way to go. Unfortunately, democracies are designed to be not benign. They're the, a, a democracy is designed to be in conflict, that you've got two people in or two groups of people at or in India, 14 groups of people that are all vying to try to gain power, to take power from each other so that they can get it. Now, if you have a really benign uh, form of government, that means that uh, the people are satisfied with the government. And then then the people are not going to be political very much. And so in a country like the United States with um, the mass media that they have, the American media will look at other countries that have a benign form of government and and every little thing that goes wrong with it, they'll blow it up to be as big as the problems in the United States to where there's really not that much going on. but unfortunately, there have been very few benign governments in the history of the world. Almost always, a dictator is dictatorial rather than benign. Almost always, a despot is despotic. Always, a king will try to uh, take power, usurp power from people. And so um, the question is, how can we have a form of government that is, in fact, uh, for the people in general, or the entire government, uh, the entire population of the people, 
uh, would be satisfied with the government, then voting wouldn't be much of an issue anymore. If we all, let us say, if we had a choice between two really, really excellent politicians to vote for, the, the population would go, uh, the, uh, the voting population would go down because people don't care. In other words, uh, uh, politician A and politician B from different parties, both of them would make really, really an excellent president. Then that particular election, nobody's going to vote. The reason that there was t record turnout in this last election is because of the level of unhappiness and, and excitement right. that was there. So this is why I would uh, would like to see and other people say, uh, oh, that would be a tragedy. Oh, no, if very few people voted, that's a very good sign. Uh, you know, it's funny, um, a, a couple comments on that. One is, you know, I can think of a benign government that's kind of a one party state, but is still a democracy. And that's Japan. You mm -hmm. know, like the Japanese government is quite benign. You know, they don't really intrude in their citizens' lives too much. The culture does. You know, the culture can be oppressive in Japan, but the government does not. The government mm -hmm. is quite benign, and it's basically been one party there that's run the state for, you know, a very long time. You Since know, the 80s. <laughs> not very yeah. well, but... <laughs> and, uh, yeah, no, but that actually, you're, you're right. You're right. Exactly. Um, the, the statement that I just made, not very well is in fact wall street and the new york times uh view of japan that's the that's america's view of japan is they never uh, the problems they had the financial problems they had in the 1980s they never got over it they yeah. never got over it japan do you remember back in the day uh maybe you were really really kid then but uh uh industry was very much afraid of japan when japanese cars came on before it was japanese cars it was japanese toys for kids i, I don't remember it but i've read all about it i i know people were afraid but the thing is like japan their economy kind of stopped growing but it's still very nice to be a japanese today you know mm -hmm. like the economy is good enough you know, so it's great for the, the japanese but it's safe. a terrible show culture for wall street journal crowd yeah, the Americans yeah, think that yeah. things have gone hell, uh, uh, hell in the handbasket because the gross national product of Japan has stymied to where, in fact, the Japanese people are doing quite well. Thank you. They, are, yeah, the they money. Just don't need to grow. Yeah. And mm -hmm. capitalism, you know, they want growth all the time. So from that perspective, it, it's not. But from the perspective of a Japanese person, it's fine. You know, and if you were born there today you would be luckier than many, many other people, you know, and, mm -hmm. you know, and another example of a government that is kind of in the middle, you know, they're they're. I wouldn't say they're fully benign, but I would not say that they're horrible either is Singapore. You know, Singapore is another country where it would be good to be born in today. You would be lucky mm -hmm. to be born there, but you know, there are certain things that you can't do like chewing gum, you know, for example, or, you know, I can't chew in... gum. <laughs> and I'm in Thailand. Yeah, they don't have gum there. I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah, mean, I mean, uh, uh, 
I wouldn't. I would not even say that even Seven Eleven has chewing gum. It really? just never. Okay. The, and, <clears throat> and in Singapore, it became kind of a fad that uh, the the Asian people didn't. I don't. I guess the chewing gum was kind of an American fad that was done by advertisements and whatnot. And so some advertisements went into Singapore, and then the uh, it was all. You know, it just all of a sudden, all this chewing gum was everywhere. Yeah, I, yeah, I was, uh, I was, and so about, they banned it. Yeah. They, they banned it, and the 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 Singapore people had no problem with that at all. But the American people, hearing that chewing gum was banned in Singapore, and that put a big black cross right across Singapore. Oh, that's a terrible place because, and that was what. 50 years ago or something that happened back in the 1970s and early 80s. Uh, I, I, I was reading about Lee Kuan Yew today. You know, I consider a really interesting person. And, um, you know, I was, I was reading an obituary about him in the New York Times. And uh, they were talking about how um, they quoted some Singaporean that said, you know, because he liked to terrorize his political opponents with lawsuits. I don't know how much you know about Lee Kuan Yew. Probably a lot because you live in that region. But, um, but he, but if you wanted to run against him, his party, he would just hit you with lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit. Then you'd be broke. You know, so he was he had that tyrannical side to him. Um, and one person in the article said, I don't know if this person was speaking for the public or whatever, but. I think he or she said that there that often there was kind of a climate of fear in Singapore, but I don't know if that's BS or not. But that was what this one person said in the article that that you felt you could not oppose the government at all, and that created kind of a climate of fear. You know, so I don't know if that's true or not, but that was what I read in the article. Um, I would say it has to do with which economic class that people are in the singapore police for instance do not molest the general population the way that the police in the united states habitually harass people on a regular basis i think part of that has to do with geography but it also has to do with more of a a mental attitude about it you see that cops in the united states have been revenuers all along in the sense that the cops have to support themselves. If they cannot get enough people to um, <clears throat> to pay fines, and in many places, in fact, there's a number of towns throughout, uh, uh, depending upon traffic, road conditions, and whatnot like that. And I can, there's, uh, they've been published on a regular basis. Stafford, South Carolina, um, has uh, is a little town that's on a highway between two fairly large towns, and it's all also a, a road that goes into North Carolina and whatnot like that. And the Stafford police have been known to, if you go through Stafford, you're going to get stopped. And they have a, a, a local law saying that if you pay the fine this way, then that town will not notify anyone 
that they stopped you. In other words, it's not going to help affect your insurance. It's not going to affect your points if the state has points on, on your license or whatever like that. And that's how this town makes their living. There's also one that's well known in uh, a, a small town that's on I-40 uh, coming out of the Ozarks. There's a very, very long stretch of downhill. And so people normally just let it rip. And there at the bottom, around the bend, are four or five cop cars catching everything that, that comes down that highway. My cool. dad was driving at that particular time uh, when we were uh, traveling, but I, we got stopped in that one. But many, many small towns. But then you look at your average city. I mean, much of the reason why Ferguson had the trouble that they were having was because Ferguson cops made money by stopping people. That was what the whole police system was. In Singapore, they don't have that kind of thing. So when people, they say in, in Singapore, are afraid of the government, that does not mean that they're afraid of the local police and the local governments. And, well, Singapore is just a city island anyway. What they're talking about is uh, in high politics. If you want to run for office, you better be afraid of these other guys in office. That's sure. the kind of issue it is. But as far as the people who were out on the street, uh, nobody gives a frying rip about the local cops. Hmm. Now, That's the Thai good. people are afraid of the cops only if the cops get involved. But here in Thailand, they have it's kind of a cultural thing to where the cops do not. They do not have sting operations. Now, they do have some. One of the <laughs> this is an interesting thing that when when the cops do set up a roadblock, they don't set it up to do the most uh, business. They will merely set up the roadblock in front of the police station. That's where they'll set them up. OK, right in front of the police station. And if you drive in front of the police station, then they may ask you for whatever reason that they're stopping you. Now, one of the things that they find in Thailand is, is that the community will also set up a, a, a roadblock on either side of the police roadblocks and that there will be partying. There will be a, a, a tent some of the city elders and whatnot like that. And what they're trying to do is to prevent the drunks on the road from getting in front of the police station. Mm. Now, when do they do this? They do it on holidays. It's on holidays. Nice, when the, yeah. yeah, when people are out drinking. So the, the local people um, have this. It's, I've seen them. On this island, I've seen them in Udantani, I have seen them in Bangkok, I've seen them in several places to where the actual local people will set up roadblocks to prevent people in the community from getting stopped by the police. Interesting. <laughs> and then that's the kind of cooperation that the Thai people have. To where in America the uh, the police system is completely completely different because the police in America have always been part of the revenue stream. Hmm. To so, where the Thai police uh, 
the actual function that they have, they normally sit inside their police station and wait for someone to have a complaint. When there is actually complaints between two people in Thailand, one of them will call the police and the police will come and investigate and find out what's going on. But other than that, the police are not actually out doing sting operations. So we're in the West, 90% of all police activities has to do with sting operations. You know, you know what I mean by a sting, yeah. right? Yeah. Right, so, hiding, hiding behind a sign or behind a billboard or behind a tree with their um, uh, radar uh, uh, speed detectors out or whatever like that, trying to catch people speeding. Well, it's high, funny, high cops yeah. know how to catch people speeding when they have an accident. There they are. And so if well, a traffic yeah. accident happens, then the, then the police are called and uh, the situation is taken care of that way. OK, I got a story for you you'll really like. So I, I was reading in The Economist about Japan's crime rate and it got so low that that the police had to start inventing completely ridiculous things to be able to catch anyone doing anything. So, for example, they parked a car off the side of the road on the highway. And they put several big stacks of beer inside the car and then opened the door so everyone could see and then hid behind a hill and waited for several days. <laughs> and it wasn't till about five days passed that finally someone stopped to get a beer and they arrested him. And then the judge threw it out. You know, <laughs> so that was a fun story. And the other one is they they actually so the crime is so low that there was a concert in Japan, I think in Tokyo or whatnot, like a rock concert, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And someone was smoking pot, and and someone called the cops. They sent twenty police officers. For one guy smoking pot at a concert, twenty, you know, because they just and I bet they didn't even hurt him, and I bet they didn't even hurt him. Probably didn't, no. But yeah, so it's it's ridiculous. But I have two questions about this, so or two to three questions about this. So one is, you know, it seems to me that what causes uh, government, whether it's democratic, like uh, Japan, although Japan's doing quite well, you know, or it's more authoritarian, you know, like, say, the Chinese government, you know, which is quite brutal, you know. Um, That's what, our, that is our estimation of it based upon the Western press. It's just different that I've actually got students who live in China. Sure. And I talk to them about that. Uh, from from time to time, and Kopi uh, 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 says that he already ever received a cop. Hmm. Now, I and he a, lives I in one friend. of the cities in in uh, China. So the the Chinese people they don't have much influence with the police. the The people there know that the Chinese government had done a lot of um, uh, construction. You know, there's what twenty or so complete cities that have almost no population. And so the the government stopped doing that. In fact, you could say that because of the concrete manufacturing 
which takes a lot of energy, plus the transportation and building those big cities is what was the, the big oil boom that was lasting uh, for as long as it did. And now, since the past five or 10 years, when the Chinese have no longer been building those cities, the amount of oil that's being consumed to manufacture the concrete and build those cities uh, has changed the world's production of oil. And the oil industry did not keep up with that. <clears throat> and so uh, there's still uh, way too much oil production because China's not doing it the way that they used to do it. Yeah, they still have some coal-fired uh, 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 power plants, but they're working really hard to get out of that. I mean, um, you might have known that at one time back in the 1970s, L.A. was smog they called it smog which was both fog and the sulfur and all of the stuff it led that was coming out of the tailpipes of cars and california had to do something about it though the uh the federal government wasn't about to and so this is what gave uh california the um automobile emission standards systems that they set up to clean out the air by taking the, the lead and whatnot out of automobiles to be sold in California. Okay, the reason I'm mentioning that is because that's exactly what's happening in China that the Westerners don't understand. And that is, is that the people of China, especially in big cities like Beijing, are being uh, uh, strongly affected by the pollution in the air. And they have to do something about this. That's why the Chinese government is going so strong into electric vehicles as well as so much of the other stuff is because they've got to do something about it. So, the United States uh, hasn't come to the point that they've got to do something about it yet. They're still too busy screaming at each other about how bad your politics are. And they're not about to do anything about it. In fact, the, uh, the Republican Party seems to be absolutely dead set against doing anything to make improvements for anyone. Absolutely dead set against doing anything that's going to help anyone because the Democrats will get credit for it. <laughs> because yeah, the Democrats are the ones who want to do good stuff. But the whole point is, is that in China, they don't have to deal with that. They're they're working really hard, uh, just like California did, to change their emission standards uh, with the automobiles in California. They also have that with <clears throat> issues not only of the pollution uh, from coal-fired power plants and things like this, and uh, as well as automobiles. They also have uh, issues of desert the deserts are too close. And so China is working and has been for years to replant some of those deserts and have done remarkably well at it. So China, it looks like, is going exactly in the right direction in all cases to where the United States is going exactly in the wrong direction in almost every issue. So a couple of comments on that. One is that, uh, <laughs> you know, a couple of things. So one is I also have friends from China or in China currently. Um, mm -hmm. And, um, you know, now I, in I, Hong I, Kong, they'll see the police, but in uh, uh, way out in the big cities out uh, out in the nation. Go ahead. I'm sorry. 
Yeah, Go ahead. So, um, so one of my friends um, who is quite well placed and also very well educated um, in in China, and um, you know, he remarked that uh, it it feels pretty scary there right now. Um, is what I've heard from him. Is that um, what city does he live lot, in? Um, just to protect his privacy, I'd rather not say, but it's, it's on the, it's on the coast. I'll just put it that way. But okay. Right. Think. So, um, so anyway, um, and he said it feels very nationalistic, very warlike and like Xi Jinping is really rallying a lot of militarism and mm-hmm. he thinks it, well, actually I've not heard this, um, from him, but he would, you know, he's, He's intimated to me that he could see militaristic action being taken in that region sometime soon. You know, um, so there's this whole. You're, you're right. They do thing. have some trouble. They've got real problems with and, Hong Kong and real and problems Xinjiang, with Taiwan. Xinjiang too. You know, the mm-hmm. one million Muslims in concentration camps, and they also have Xi Jinping removing term limits. Because they had this really smart system after Mao where they would have two terms per president, you know, and it was a nice system. They would choose the next one. It was all in the mold of Deng Xiaoping, right, where he was a very, you know, um, liberal sort of a, a Chinese politician, right, you know, where he was opening up a lot of aspects of Chinese society in ways that were beneficial. And mm-hmm. then Xi Jinping came in and completely took it in the opposite direction of more authoritarianism, more monitoring of what everyone's doing, more surveillance, um, more tracking. You know, you have to use VPNs to do a lot, almost anything over there. You know, um, lots of this kind of thing, as well as stirring up nationalist sentiment and militarism and all of these things and then removing term limits so he can be president for life mm-hmm. you know so he's very very dangerous um probably the most dangerous person in the world you know um and you know there's one way of looking at that that uh, that we might both be missing that would be useful and that is is that people in china ha- are of a wide variety you could ask in the United States someone a question, and he would come up with how dangerous the United States government is, blah, 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 blah. And you go talk to somebody else, and he says, mm, I don't care. And so this may also be about uh, the issues because the guys that I'm talking to are Dama dudes. Sure. And so, and the guy that you may be talking to may have gotten arrested this year. And so he's going he, he to did it, but <laughs> he definitely did it. But uh, he might have. <laughs> but, who knows? I guess right. At least yeah. I, so I it depends upon. Yeah. And so in in a way, there's a lot of stuff that's going on. And I mean, there is so many people and so much happening and so many interactions that it's really hard to get a handle on what's really going on over there. It is, and there's so much manipulation of everything on mm-hmm. their side. The news is manipulated, everything manipulated. is being manipulated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of manipulation. I mean, you know, there was one thing that was really concerning as an American, um, which was we had a, a, did you hear about the 
Daryl Morey, I think is, I don't know what the guy's name is, the general manager of the Houston Rockets in Hong Kong. Did you hear about this? So there's no. this very famous. The Houston back- Rockets in Hong Kong. No, no, okay, so it's about Hong Kong. Okay. So there's the general manager of the Houston Rockets, and his name's Morey is his last, I don't know what his first name is. And um, I don't care about basketball at all. It doesn't interest me. But anyway. Basketball. I was wondering whether it was twiddly winks or checkers. Yeah. Basketball. basketball. (laughs) Glad to hear you don't care either. But (laughs) but anyway, he did this tweet in support of the protesters in Hong Kong. It was a very mild tweet. It was like, I stand with Hong Kong, something like that, you know. And um, the the Chinese government responded by completely canceling everything Houston Rockets in China, completely like banning, like they just really just went to town hammering all of their business in China. And basically the whole NBA reacted by removing any statements in support of Hong Kong LeBron James came out saying, like, I support the Chinese Communist Party. You know, all these people came out to make sure, because China is a cash cow for the NBA. You know, they make a lot of money off the Chinese market. So they basically... I was wondering why that would be. If they're not making any money about it, they would have been... Oh, they're making so much money. Yeah, they're making a lot. It's their second biggest market. I think, actually, maybe for some teams, it, it is the biggest, but... Um, it's well, that just shows that the American mentality has more to do than with it. It's all about the money. It's all about the money. Never mind about any yeah. other issue. Well, then it's always all about, about this. Is these same basketball players and general managers and whatnot will criticize the American government and police and all of this very harshly. Black Lives Matter, all of this. Then, but they won't say one iota about China after this issue with with the Mori. Not a single thing. And there is a huge uproar in in recently over what they're doing in Xinjiang, you know, which is a crime against humanity. And um, not one word, you know, from any of these basketball players. They're collecting huge checks. But they will very happily criticize what the Americans, anything that goes wrong in America. Yet there's one million Muslims in concentration camps in China, and they say nothing. You know, so it's and they're aware of it too, obviously. So, well, you, you and know, I don't know exactly how many there are, and what is the definition of concentration camp and all of that kind of stuff. That in fact things may not be nearly as bad as, as the Westerners say, and the Chinese government is ticked off about the fact that the West is just interfering in so much business in in China. Um, so there's always two sides of the uh, of the issue uh, there. There is, there is, yeah. But um... but the thing that I find really interesting on that same topic, in a slightly different way. And that is uh, uh, Charlie Hebdo and uh, um, uh, let us say cartoon characters with turbans. <laughs> cartoon characters with turbans seems to um, uh, upset Muslims. It would seem to me that um, 
because of that, that people would in fact have cartoon pictures of people with turbans, uh, bombs in their turbans, as icons, avatars, uh, pictures, and there would be hundreds of billions of these photos all over the place. They would be sent on a regular basis that any time that you have a Muslim friend, you would automatically attach it, uh, an email uh, uh, photo of uh, a, a cartoon character with a turban that had a bomb in it. And you just, you know, every time that you send an email, you send that out. If they flooded the world with all of these images, then nobody would care anymore. It's only important because they can control it. You see what I mean? It's only that uh, that there are no pictures of uh, uh, cartoon characters with uh, bombs in their turbans is because somebody didn't like it enough that they caused, um, you know, some of the stuff that's happened that's killed people, especially in France and, and in Europe. Um, so they, they've kind of like let them get away with it, just like the, uh, the basketball industry has let China get away with uh, uh, saying things about uh, the Uyghurs in, in Hong Kong. So it's uh, uh, free speech then in that regard is not so free, is it? It depends upon the repercussions. And yeah, there are when... some costs there. And, like, that's that's partly what's very kind of crazy about it as an American, is to have a foreign government censoring our own media, you know, just feels very wrong, you know, which I'm sure you can understand, you know. Um, and that's not to say that the American... Since I don't pay attention to either one of them, I can say that it's not my business. When we're getting back to the Dhamma, we can say that, hey, it doesn't matter how much those two groups of people are in conflict with each other. You still don't have to join that conflict, take sides, because if you do, then you're inviting bad feelings. Possibly the strangest example of that would be that uh, uh, on a couple of the videos, I think uh, two different videos that have done with Guru Viking, because those videos have a lot of comments. One of them has got more than 90 comments on it. And someone in there said, how dare you be happy when there are starving kids in uh, Yemen. I think she mentioned Yemen in particular. Well, how dare anyone be happy? <laughs> right, exactly. And that uh, she got a whole lot of comments back, but she was quite adamant with her position that uh, no one has a has a um, a right to be happy when anyone else is unhappy, without recognizing that people do have the right to be unhappy. Right. If people got a right to be unhappy, is who to me to uh, uh, to to change that? And so um, the the point though is is that this person, I think it was a woman, uh, is not in Yemen doing anything herself 
about the starving kids or the problems in Yemen. She's not there. She's sitting at her desk at home in America, and she's complaining, why should someone in Thailand be joyful when someone in, in Yemen is suffering? Sure. I mean, it's very like Mahayana as well, or Mahayana. I don't know. What, is it uh-huh. you say Mahayana or Mahayana? Is that what's the proper? I, I don't I don't it know any of it. Doesn't that yeah. right? Okay, there's so, Tibetan and there's Japanese and there's Chan and there's Sun. Sure, sure. So it's Mahayana. Mahayana, I don't know. I think that that's a word that was invented in the West. I, I don't know who invented it, but I think the Tibetans actually invented it, but I'm not sure about that. But anyway, because uh, I think it is, I don't know what the language is. Um, but anyway, um, they call it the greater vehicle, right? And the Hinayana is the, the smaller vehicle. That's why it's considered a diminutive, right? And that's why the, the, the they call Hinayana Theravada is not diminutive, right? But anyway, all that aside. Actually, I know specifically Thai and Lao and Cambodian monks in the United States who just use the word Hinayana as if it doesn't have that connotation. It's the Western mentality that that sees the little the lesser vehicle as lesser. Sure. As opposed and to in smaller. Fact, you could call it better because you know, you, you strip off all the crap, right? It should probably be your opinion. But, <laughs> yeah. Dump a big but, load off a of bike boat, right. <laughs> Including all sure. of those Republicans. Get out. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so anyway, back to the Mahayana. So, mm-hmm. with respect to that, um, you know, it's an emphasis on the Bodhisattva path. That's what's considered to be the difference between Mahayana and Theravada, right? Is the emphasis on the Bodhisattva, and the Bodhisattva mm-hmm. path is being superior to the Arhat path. Is basically what the Mahayanists claim in all their various different forms. I have heard some Mahayanists say that they're normally beginners, low class, uneducated, Pudajana, ordinary people who say that kind of thing that what we have is better than yours. The actual Bodhisattvas and the actual Arahats, they don't talk about that kind of crap. They don't care. Yeah. Yeah, they don't care. But the reason I brought it up is because this woman in the comments is taking kind of a bodhisattva sort of an approach, right? Because no, she's absolutely one hundred percent Christian. <laughs> sure, but but I'm just talking about like in the abstract, like an actual bodhisattva wouldn't say what she said. But but what I mean by that is, according to the bodhisattva, they're supposed to keep being reborn, right, until. Everyone else is a bodhisattva. Then they can finally become, you know, an arhat, right? They can finally become a Buddha. A vow of failure. Yes, I got that. Yes, yes. And that's basically what she's making, is a vow of failure. Mm -hmm. And she's failing. And and she's failing in this moment. She's not failing after a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand rebirths. She's failing right now. Oh, she's miserable right now. Right. And, and she's not actually, act, she's not actually um, uh, fulfilling her, if you would think of it like that, if she had one, she's not fulfilling her bodhisattva vow. She's, she's not at all doing anything Buddhist. 
This is 100% Christian. This is all suffer all the time. How dare you be happy? We've got trouble here, you know. We've got trouble in River City. Yes, and a couple of comments on that. One is, what she's really saying in her comment is, why can't I be happy? That's really what she's saying. Why can't I be happy? I got that. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Why am I not happy? Oh, it's this kid in Yemen. This it's kid the is kid the reason. Yemen. And <laughs> guess what? The kid, is, the kid in Yemen is not in Yemen. The kid in Yemen is in her mind. Right. Right. But, you know, Yemen might not even exist. I mean, Yemen probably exists, but <laughs> you know what I mean? She's probably, she's never been there, you know, never seen it. You know, where's, where's right. Yemen, right? At best, um, it's a picture on a map. Sure. So then my other comment that I was going to make was, um, was, um, God, oh, well, I kind of forgot, but that's okay. Um, let's see. Yemen, well, let's go uh, back to that, yeah. let's go back to that Mahayana, um, Oh, 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 I remember now. Okay. Uh, briefly. So, um, so what this kind of connects to my practice. So, um, one thing I noticed today, um, so a couple things. So one was that, um, after I had done enough, a certain amount of sits today, and I was at the point where I was just walking through my day and just plucking joy you know, from the, the ether, you know, just, uh, you know, I, I noticed something and then I'd return to it's all good. You know, it's all fine, you know, whatever, just continually gladdening the mind as I was walking through, you know, and you talked about this in one of the videos that you mentioned is I became aware that, um, this is your video on dark night of the soul was I became aware how much of, how much of my life has been spent in this kind of fog of, of this that fog of dukkha, you know, fog of mm-hmm. not feeling good and running from one a monkey mind, you know, swinging from one rotten branch to the next, you know, like that woman in the comment, you know, although maybe not quite like that, but, you know, in my own way, you know, um, and so I, I was like, wow, you know, that's it's a lot of time that's been spent there, even just this morning, you know, when I woke up before I had my first sit, you know, mm-hmm. and yesterday when I was having my day off day, you know, um, which we started to discuss at the beginning of this about how it's okay to take a day off kind of, kind of. A thing. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. Every day is a different day. And uh, the, the right way to approach it is through investigation. How, how is today? What do I feel like? If I, if I feel tired, let me take a few deep breaths. Let's see if we can do something with that. Uh, if the mind tends to get off on a particular topic, uh, which could be anything, um, a return to eBay, a, uh, a visa that's got to be signed, a, you know, anything uh, that is work to be done that we haven't done yet, maybe it's not the time to do it, but the mind will spin about getting that thing done over and over and over again, and that would be the kind of thoughts that you would have on a day, a down day, you would say, 
where our um, sati is not so good. That sati goes up and down, sati is affected just like everything else. That when the mind is sharp, then the sati is good. This is, in fact, why it's not a good idea for people to practice sitting for a long, long time. Is because when they're sitting a long time, the mind gets dull, their sati uh, gets dull, and they go off into a really dull state. And then their delusional thinking is, this is meditation. I'm going deep. No, they're not going deep. They're just going dull. <laughs> and that has, and so this is something that we can begin to, to look at, is that let's uh, practice in a way that's going to keep the mind sharp, as opposed to practicing in a way that intentionally or almost semi-intentionally gets it to be dull again. That's an example then of that bodhisattva ideal that we were talking about. Getting back to that is the people don't realize that that actually is taking the vow of failure. Why? Because everybody knows that the, that the world is full of all kinds of people. And by the time that all of those people uh, uh, have been cured of their ills, the next generation will have all of their ills. And this poor, dumb bodhisattva that's taken this vow has no chance of coming out of his suffering. Unless he works really hard and suffers a whole lot to get all of these other people out of their suffering, and they don't want to come out of their suffering. Right. Okay. Now, uh, so the problem is not the bodhisattva ideal. The problem is the vow. Because the vow sets one up for failure. In the sense that even the Buddha says that renunciation is an ordinary right view act. Why? Because renunciation always winds up in uh, ripens and clinging in the sense that when you renounce something, say, I'm not ever going to do that again, then how bad are you going to feel when you do it again? Yeah. Right? Okay. So uh, if you uh, instead have, uh, in, instead of the vow, I will never do that again, we can say, wow, that hurts. That's painful. I'm going to remember this so that the next time it happens, I'll be on top of it. And then the next time, and I miss that one too, then I can go back and do the same thing again. Wow, it hurts again. <laughs> Let me keep my eye open so that I can see what's going on. And that one then winds up being successful. Oh, to what where do you think that? renunciation brings on failure. Sure. So let's say I'm having a bad day, right? Or I'm having a, an off day. Let's not even call it bad. Just call it an off day, you know? And and I say, oh, this is bad. You know, next time I'm going to try better. But that doesn't sound so wholesome. Like, wouldn't it be more wholesome just to say, oh, it's just an off day. That's fine, you know? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that be more wholesome? Well... Yes, in the sense that look at what's going on and let's evaluate what's happening right now and do right. so without judgment. It's always nurturing. Oh, yes, I see that today I feel low. 
Today I'm sick. Today I'm uh, uh, have sore muscles. Today I have um, indigestion, or today I have sticky bowel, uh, bowels or, or something, okay? The point is, is to know what the body is doing without making judgments about it, but rather to just experience what the body is doing so that we begin to get to know the body very well. So in that regard, we don't have to judge. You can say that uh, uh, there are many different ways to describe it, and you can use the same words and be non-judgmental, and then use those same words and be judgmental. Like, for instance, a bad day or an off day. That off day can just be um, informational. But we can say it as an off day in the sense of, and I really don't like it. I really don't like how I feel right now. Right? That's dukkha. Not liking how you feel rather than just experiencing how you feel. Sure. Okay, so, so let's get yeah. back a little bit then to the uh, uh, this renunciation or this bodhisattva vow and look at it from the perspective of um, with the Dhamma. And this is not necessarily Theravada that we're saying, uh, but when we have the Dhamma, then we can see the enormous benefit of it. And because of this enormous benefit, we actually want to share it with others. Now, we can do that in a real way, or we can do that in a grandiose way. So in the grandiosity, we can see that uh, even in the Theravada practice of metta, may all beings be happy, is exactly that same thing that the bodhisattvas are doing. May all beings be free from suffering, and then I will be free from suffering. At least in the metta, they say, may all beings be happy without having that kicker of it. Only when they do, I can be happy. But it's still the same thing. To whereas we never practice that way, it's not possible. And so when we have may all beings be happy, or may all beings with the bodhisattva, that's, that's um, let us say it's an abstract concept that we have no clue about. What do you mean by all beings? And then I think of one worm, and one elephant, and one zebra, and one human, and one barfly, and one gadfly, and that's my whole uh, all beings, right? The human mind is not capable of surrounding and getting a hold of a concept of all beings. It's abstract completely. Right? Uh, you can, an example of that is that you can think of one marching band, but you cannot think of all marching bands. Sure. So, the right way of practicing both the bodhisattva and the metta is to do it in a real way. In other words, uh, in metta, when you have the dhamma, when you have the joy, then you want to share that joy. And you can share it in the sense of you've heard uh, teach a man to fish, 
versus giving him a fish. If you give him a fish, he eats for a day. If you teach a man a fish, to fish, then he can eat not only for his lifetime, but he can feed others also. You probably heard that. Okay. So you can give the Dhamma like you give a fish just by smiling at people. Hmm. That's just sharing the Dhamma. You've got joy, share it. Be happy, you know. Encourage others to be happy in this present moment. Not all beings, just the people who can see your joy, because in that particular moment, that's your whole world. Yep. Your whole world is what you can see, feel, touch, taste, and experience. And when you can't touch, taste, uh, feel, or experience it, then it's only a concept. It's not real. So in that way, the kids in Yemen who were starving in Yemen is still merely a concept. It's not real kids. But if I had a kid from Yemen, with or without a passport, who shows up on my doorstep or here on the porch, I'm going to treat him very well. But if he stays in Yemen and I'm not in Yemen, there's not much I can do about it. And yet this is where these these vows come from. May all beings be happy or may all beings be free from suffering with the Bodhisattva uh, ideal. Those ideals are bound for failure. Because one individual person does not have that kind of profound influence on foreign people. For instance, at best, at, at the time of the death of the Buddha, there was approximately 20,000 bhikkhus, of which approximately 10% of them were arahats at that time. And you can say, wow, that was really successful. It's especially successful because that group has maintained its existence for 2,500 years. Not only that, but all across the world, the uh, the bhikkhu sangha, or the the order of monks, nuns, whatever, in various countries and various robes and whatnot like that, is well over six million. Hmm. Well, probably there's not six million armed troops in the world right now, anywhere. Worldwide, there are more Buddhist monks and nuns and uh, uh, devotees and uh, uh, shaved heads and white dressed folks than there are in military uniform. And I think that that's quite marvelous. However, however, at the time of the Buddha, when he died, there was only 20,000 out of a population of maybe a, a half a million in that whole area of India. So in that regard of the Bodhisattva ideal, the Buddha was a raucous failure. All beings be happy. Sorry, he failed at that. It's too grandiose. But did he actually have a major influence on every person he met? Absolutely. Sure. I, you know, I read this book a while back, about a year and a half ago, um, about the Bodhisattva path, um, in part. Yeah, that was a big part of it, not the whole subject of the book, but it was a big part of it. And, um, you know, the author made the point, the author was a Zen guy which is interesting because Zenists don't really write about Bodhisattva that much, but he did. And um, Such is the nature of Western Buddhism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's um, a stew. It's worse than a stew. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But, um, but anyhow, it was 
a nice book. It was about creativity in Buddhism. But, you know, anyway, um, maybe he was being creative, too. <laughs> but uh, um, anyway, uh, he made the point that what what is so wonderful about the Bodhisattva path is exactly the fact that it's so unrealistic. You know, and, and that's what's so beautiful. Wow, it. that is so Western. And, and, that then, is... the, and, and then the other thing that he said was what is that, wonderful about something is is that it's impossible what yeah 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 no, yeah he said it's it's so optimistic it's the most optimistic viewpoint you could possibly have you know to to have everyone be a bodhisattva he said it's so optimistic that 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 should inspire you how optimistic that is so that, that was kind of an yes it does it, yeah. it is it is a bait and switch and he is predominating the bait. It is delicious. It is marvelous. It is a wonderful idea on paper until you try to put it in action. And then you can see it is an um, impossible situation. It's too grandiose. It's too much. And it is guaranteed to fail. And discourage. Hmm? Discourage, ultimately, be, be a source of discouragement. You know, right, it's and so like people wind up being discouraged with it. You're, you're right with that. Okay, so a much better way of looking at it is, is that instead of saying, oh, I have to wait until all of the other people get the Dhamma before I can get the Dhamma, therefore I am now in a state of deprivation and I've got to go work to help all of those people in order to get my reward. How is that different from Western society going to work for the man? I work for the man, I help the man, I get my boss's uh, business going, and he'll give me a crumb or two. That's uh, the Bodhisattva ideal. It is, it really is, okay? As opposed to- You'd still be pretty happy if you're a Bodhisattva. You wouldn't be quite as happy as, as if you were an arhat or a Buddha. You'd still be quite, quite good. You'd be much better than the average person, you know, if you're a bodhisattva. You're like, you're like 90%. The word actually you know? means, what it actually means is seeker, or one who is looking. Now, if you, if you uh, put that as a distinction between he who is searching, looking, and he who is finding and enjoying, you will see he who is finding and enjoying successful, and he who is seeking and not finding as failing. The bodhisattva ideal is a failure. Because, sure, but, but if they have it, is is that you have to have all beings be happy before you can be happy, which is the way that people hear that. So much better way of doing it is get your own happiness and then you can spread it at whatever limited way that you can spread it right if you right. spread joy then spread joy if you have room on your boat for someone then take them on as a student teach them how to make a boat teach them how to row a boat and let them go do that too and pretty soon we have all the people in the boats who want to be in boats and all none of, of those people? Hmm? And none of them exist. 
well, it depends upon how the metaphor is used. <laughs> no, just none of them exist in general. What do you mean? No one exists. Uh, depends upon how you define the word one. No person exists. No, I... Okay, it again, it depends upon how that you define the word person. No, um, no innate individual with a particular identifier exists. You have aggregates. Nothing uh, permanent exists. Nothing permanent exists. There is no essence yes. of Robert. Right. You have aggregates. You know, there's the five aggregates, right? It's, and everybody's got them, and they do with them what they want to do. They don't. Well, not they what they do. want to do. They do it the way they were told to do it. Right. The things okay. themselves just do. Okay. <clears throat> they don't do it. You right. don't do it. I don't. So do a lot of things just that's, do. Well, the point that I'm making here is, is that language has a lot to do then with our concepts uh, that it's confusing, that, but that confusion can be easily, uh, let us say, the Gordian knot can be easily split in one's mind when we talk about it in the sense of permanent that everything is temporary there is no self in the sense that the self is something that is uh definitive long-lasting and actually does exist and the example would be the chariot that the king melinda has okay that chariot does exist only in the mind of the guy who knows about chariots but the chariotness is not in the chariot because you can take the chariot apart and the wheels are over here, and the rims are over there, and the basket's over there, the straw out of the basket's over there, and the, uh, uh, the center pole is over there. Where's the chariot? And the answer to that is I can look at all of that stuff around there. I can see the parts of the chariot, and I put those parts together in my mind, and it's now that concept. chariot exists in the mind. It's a concept. It exists as a concept. So, in that regard, uh, actual physical human beings with physical bodies, physical emotions, physical minds, physical thought processes uh, that manifest themselves physically, all of that does exist, but that the, the person who they think they are does not exist, especially when they think they are the same person. For instance, like... Um, Many people have a lot of trouble remembering what they did when they were very, very young. Very few people will remember, for instance, what they had on their fifth birthday present. What kind of cake did you have at your fifth birthday? Did you have a party? How many people were at your party on your fifth birthday? Do you remember your fourth birthday party? Do you remember what present you got for your fourth birthday? Okay. When we can remember that kind of stuff, then we think of it as my birthday. And yet there is absolutely nothing left except a tiny few bits and pieces of memory. And that's all that's left. The me that existed at that fourth birthday 
that doesn't exist anymore. And I am nothing like that person at the age of four. I ha I do I ju I still don't have the presents that I received. I don't have those gifts anymore. Not only that, but I don't wear the clothes that I wore when I was four. Not only that, but I don't have the thoughts that I had when I was four. Not only that, but I don't have the skin that I had when I was four or the stature or anything. 100% everything has changed since the time that I was four. Not one thing exists now that, uh, that existed then and nothing that existed then exists now except for my memory of it which is nothing but a concept. And then I can think of uh, an example would be the movie Avatar. I can have thoughts of seeing the movie Avatar, but the real planet and the real avatars are no more in existence than uh, remembering when I was four years old. That all of that doesn't yeah. exist anymore. It's gone. And so the delusion is, is that I am what I was when I was four, I am five, I am 10, I am 15. And no, that's not true. In fact, you're not even who you were last year. You don't remember what well, you did for you on your birthday last year. Yes, a couple of comments on that. So one is, you know, the neuroscience shows that when you're remembering a memory, you're not actually remembering the moment, you're remembering the last time you remembered it. So it's a that's even worse, isn't it? Yeah, it's a game of telephone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Freud picked up on that when he was talking about dreams. And he believed that your memory of the dream was part of the dream itself. So how you remember, I would dream, go so far as to say your memory of the dream is now the dream and the dream that you had at night. Yes. You don't remember that that's gone. That all we re all we have of that dream is what we remember of it now. Right, which is why it was useful in therapy in part because you're re revealing how you feel now by how you're recalling that dream. You know, mm -hmm. however accurate it was or wasn't. Isn't but, that interesting? Everything happens right now, and the past can be completely dispensed with. It's forgotten. It doesn't exist anymore. But when we identify with ourselves in the past, that's delusional. Thinking that so, I am in the past and I am in the future to where everything is in the set of flux. But so, question, what but is yeah. in flux yeah. does exist. But the continuity of that flux does not. In this moment, there is a Robert. But that Robert right now is not the same Robert that I said last time when I said, this is Robert, you've changed. Why? Sure. Because before you were doing this and now you're doing this. Something's changed. It's not the same Robert. Sure. So comment on that. So, you know, one thing I've noticed in my practice, particularly today, uh, but I've also noticed it in the past, you know, a few days ago is, um, when is sometimes when I um, sometimes I'll have an insight, you know, of, oh, when this happened 10 minutes ago, it was this thing led to this thing, which led to this thing. And that's why 
I felt that that way I did, or that's why this happened. You know, as I had a perception, let's say I found myself, um, you know, here's a kind of a nice, pleasant version of that today. Um, I, I was just thinking about, I was walking my dog and I was looking at my dog, thinking about how I loved my dog, you know, and I, and then I thought, huh, I wonder where that came from. And then I realized, well, I saw another dog in the distance and that caused me to look at my dog. And then that caused that thought to arise that I love my dog. This, what you're talking about now is very, very useful. You're beginning now and you use the word insight and I'll, that's okay insight into the nature of cause and effect that this thought causes that thought that thought causes this feeling this feeling causes this behavior and everything is set up in that sequence of cause effect cause effect and if we're wise to it we can interrupt or um, make modifications in that cause effect so that it does not wind up in dukkha an example of that is the guy sees the dog at a distance. He looks at the lousy mutt that he's got here, and he feels bad because he wants that fancy dog out there, and all he's got is this stupid dog that he's got here. All right? You can hear all the dukkha that he's created in his mind because now he's comparing the two dogs. But if you can say, oh, that's a nice dog, and oh, this is a nice dog, then there's no dukkha there. Right. Right. And, you know, and it's funny, too, there was a, you know, there was a portion of one of your talks where you were talking about training a horse and how the good horse trainer would give them an apple and get to know them, be nice to them, etc. And mm -hmm. it made me happy listening to that because that has been my approach to my dog is I'm very nice to him all the time. And he's, he's very happy. People will even tell me your dog seems like such a happy dog. You know, um, like a, my neighbor told me that today, like, oh, your dog seems really happy. And it's like, well, that's because I'm nice to him all the time, mm -hmm. you know, all the time, every day. You know, I'm just Guess nice. Guess what? If you be nice to yourself, you'll be a good dog, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> well, it's funny because I had another realization um, that I'm similar with my mom. Um, because my mom, uh, she has bipolar disorder, you know, so, um, so my, one of my ways of dealing with that has been being very nice and reassuring to her all the time because mm -hmm. she would get wrapped up in whatever she would get wrapped up in, you know, like, oh, this person at work said this or this happened, that happened, you know, and, and her emotions could just totally go wherever they're going to go. And my approach with, with my mom has, has always been, it's okay, mom, you know, it's all going to be fine. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, it's, don't worry about it. You know, you're worried about your job. There's plenty of other jobs out there, you know, worried about this person. No well, need right to worry now, about at this that. particular moment, right now, at this particular moment, you can yeah. tell that the person that you're telling me about is not here. Sure. They're not here. That that person that you're talking about right now was at work before, but right here, right now, they're not here. Right, that's she's, even better. Yeah, yeah. yeah, she's not here. Why should you be talking about her? She's not here. Not part right. of the reality. She's part right, of the that, past. 
Yes, yes, that's that's better. That's better. I'll say that next time. But <laughs> but you know, it's it's been nice being able to help my mom in this way. You know, that's been a very nice part of How my life. How bodhisattva you know? of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when we start treating ourselves yeah. well, then we start treating the dog well. And when we start treating the dog well and ourselves well, we start treating other people well also. This is the distinction then between the Arahat and the Bodhisattva, is that the Arahat is completely successful in getting his own mind straightened out, and then he's very successful at dealing with others one at a time in this present moment, one by one as they occur to where the bodhisattva is stuck in failure because he hasn't gotten everybody saved. He doesn't even know how to save everybody. He doesn't even know how to cheer up anybody because he's not been cheered up yet because he's waiting for all the other people to get cheered up before he can cheer up. Right. Well, this is yeah. uh, And so this is how people see the bodhisattva ideal. The original idea of it was, was, was nice, but it was grandiose. But within the within the Theravada and and Bhikkhu uh, Buddha Dasa did talk about this, but the main teacher on this particular point, like so much of the other, was Achan Po. Achan Po was very very clear and very specific and very adamant about that. Uh, uh, what Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa talked about was duty to the Dhamma that we have a duty to the Dhamma in the sense of the Buddha Dhamma, or we can think of it as Dhamma is reality. You have responsibilities to the reality that you live in. For instance, if the body is going to stay alive, you have the responsibility to breathe. And guess what? When we do then breathe, we get the benefit of that breath. Because we are doing our duty of the Dhamma and getting the benefit of doing our duty to the Dhamma right then and there. So if the greater uh, understanding of the Buddha Dhamma or the greater understanding of Dhamma in general is um, that it is better to be joyful than it is to be miserable, then let us gain joy and then spread it as we may. This is our duty to the Dharma. When we recognize that our duty to the Dharma is just living, and when we don't live correctly, we suffer. That dukkha is actually the um, uh, the result of not living according to reality, not according to the Dharma. But when we do live according to the Dharma, then we gain great benefit from that. And so when we recognize there is a duty, and I, my duty is, is to, to not only to live the Dhamma, but to spread it. And by doing that, I get great joy. I really enjoy our conversations because I'm actually out there spreading the Dhamma. That's the whole idea of spreading the Dhamma is because we gain great benefit. We gain great joy uh, that, in fact, uh, there is a sutta where the Buddha, I'm not going to go into any detail on that sutta other than to say that talking of the Dhamma and spreading the Dhamma is sufficient 
all the conditionality that's needed for one to go into jhana. Mm. Why? Because the dhamma is wholesome. Mm. The dhamma is joyful. If we start having joy and we are really paying attention to the Dhamma, that means that we're applying our mind to the Dhamma and sustaining the Dhamma. We're gaining great joy out of listening to the Dhamma right now. And the person has all the constituent components of jhana, uh, jhana just by listening to the Dhamma or teaching the Dhamma, jhana, uh, the Dhamma. By teaching the Dhamma, the one can go right into jhana. Well, in, in fact, they do. Can do meet together right okay so back to that point then once we have the dhamma our duty then is to live that dhamma and by living the dhamma we spread it you cannot live the dhamma without spreading it to others it's like if you smile at somebody that's like giving them a fish Yes, and, a and so that. if you go even further yeah. than that and give the gift to the Dhamma in the sense of teaching the Dhamma, then not only are you teaching the person how to find his own smiles anytime he wants to, but now he has the skills to go and teach other people how to smile. And right. he can teach right. them how to smile. And so for 2,500 years, We've been spreading the Dhamma just like this, one person at a time, one-on-one. -on -one. It's always been spread like that. But the very best of the Dhamma is always done in a transmission, one-on-one. -on -one. That's been in the Theravada, in the, uh, the Tibetan, in the Japanese. It always has to do with one's relationship to their teacher. Because that is wholesome. And that's actually then the whole point of uh, the duty to the Dhamma is by sharing the Dhamma, and because of that, it has a positive feedback loop, and it grows. So we're talking about a seed that grows and grows and grows into the organization that exists now of the uh, order of Buddhist monks worldwide. Right? But the Bodhisattva ideal starts big in the first place. You got to go save everybody. All yeah. beings. Go get them all. And when you get them all happy, then you can be happy too. Well, how are you going to teach somebody to ha be happy? That's almost like only after the entire world is completely on fire and burning down, can you get any fire? Well, how am I going to start the world on fire to get it to burn down before uh, so that by the time the whole world is burning down, I can get a little bit of fire? How can I get the world on fire if I don't have any in the beginning? So it's got a catch-22 built into it. It's got a catch-22 built into it when, they, when it's looked like may all beings be happy or the metta uh, uh, or the bodhisattva ideal is set up for failure. It's I, too I grandiose. Think, yeah. Yes, I, yeah. I think this touches on something that's really important. Um, and, you know, and I think that, you know, I don't know if the bodhisattvas would actually feel this, except perhaps in the Western context, I'm sure they would. But in, in the West, guilt is a very large part of our society, is this notion of guilt. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if it is to the same degree in Asia. I know the Dalai Lama once said that um, he was meeting with people. Um, in, I think this was in the 80s or the 90s. He was meeting with some people um, from the West, and they met, someone met, asked him a question about self-hatred. And he had never heard that word before. It didn't translate to anything in Tibetan. Self-hatred. Self-hatred, uh-huh. There's no translation in Tibetan. He didn't understand it. He had to he had to repeatedly ask questions to understand what what this meant, because he he didn't even have a concept for it himself. And okay. and I think that's tied into guilt. And I think this notion of having to save everyone, you know, which is a very Christian idea. Although the Bodhisattva path is not Christian, you know, but it it parallels that. You know, even though it's very old, it's much. Probably older than Christianity. You're you're touching on a very important point. You're touching on something. um, First off, let us say that the whole concept of original sin is there. In other words, you are, according to Christianity, you are screwed up. You were screwed up from the very beginning. You were screwed up because of your ancestry screwed up. And because your ancestors, and in a way, they're right. The judgments that Adam and Eve did way back when, though they didn't have the names of Adam and Eve, but they started the critical thinking, the judgments and whatnot like that. So you could say then that really what the Western mind has that's built on guilt is based upon really critical thinking. With the idea that this is good and this is bad, and you're bad, and this is good, and that uh, you can't do anything about it. You screwed up. And so we have this concept of punishment and guilt. Now, in the Mediterranean culture, it's completely different than that. They have what is called an honor system. This, and the worst aspects of it is when if the daughter uh, literally screws up, then the family will kill her rather than uh, having to deal with the shame of the daughter screwing up, right? Not guilt. The father in our culture will feel guilty because his daughter screwed up. In um, Timbuktu, literally, or in Tunisia, or in uh, Egypt, if the daughter screws up, the father will try to uh, maintain his honor rather than feeling guilty. Yeah, it's funny. Nietzsche writes about that genealogy of morals, how the, the noble society is a very different meaning of noble than what how you describe noble or Buddhism describes it. His meaning is very different. But anyway, what he calls noble, I'll say, um, they had punishment, but they didn't have guilt. Mm-hmm. And, that's, that's, and then it was Christianity that created guilt. But before guilt, it, it appears was just that. punishment. It was just punishment. It wasn't a moral judgment with it. It was just punishment. Okay. I would go yeah. so far as to say that much of the culture of Thailand is also honor-based. And that they talk about face. Okay. Uh, Chinese talk about face in the sense of losing face. Right. And that's an honor code. But in the uh, more Asian part of it, they also have the quality of rehabilitation, not forgiveness, but rehabilitation. 
You see, in in the West, the rehabilitation uh, is only possible if if there is guilt. In other words, you have to feel guilty, you have to remorse, you have to confess, and it's built right into our legal system. If if uh, someone confesses to a crime, then the prosecutor has less work to do, the defense lawyer has less to do, the judge has less to do, and they'll say, okay, we'll cut him a break. If he confesses, we'll give him a reduced sentence. That's the guilt, okay? In the in the honor culture, you screwed up. We don't care whether you admit it or not. Off with your head, whack. Yep. Okay, that's yep. the difference. But in Asia, uh, you screwed up. We know you screwed up. Get over it. Yeah, it's funny. And uh, Nietzsche, the way he puts it, as he said, the. The noble cultures, there was good and bad in the, the, in the, in the slave, slave uh, mentality, which is what he refers to Christianity as slave morality. He refers to the pre-Christian times as master morality. And he says the, the slave morality, so the master morality believes in good and bad. The slave morality believes in good and evil. Mm-hmm. And it's a very important distinction in the the evil has a lot the good and the evil has a lot of moral judgmentalness in it. Yes, you know? but you can you can yeah. see in fact that judgment or that criticism and the and the outcome of that is the bad feelings of guilt. Yes. And this is yeah. what and I see so strongly in the Western society. Is a it is yeah. a guilt ridden society. It is, and even and people even Christian, feel guilty for not yep. feeling guilty. Yep, yep, and I realize as well that I would feel guilty about having an off day. <laughs> you know, like, oh, why didn't I do anything today? You know, mm-hmm. what what's wrong with me? You know, why why am How I? How dare like you this? be lazy? Right, How even though you don't I be lazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, how dare I play video games, you know? How dare I not apply for jobs? You know, this and that, you know? And um, and it's, yeah, it's it's very, uh, um, you know, it's a boondoggle, you know? It, it's like, it, it's not just that. It's like, it's like a fog, you know? It's like a fog that just kind of screws up your whole day. Just exactly so. Feeling uh-huh. guilty. Well, they talk about, about the, fog, the fog of war because yeah. there's so much happening that people can't keep track of. And so everything winds up being a fog. Not only that, but everybody's got their own viewpoint about what really happened. So they, uh, this group of enemies have this idea. This group of enemies have that idea. This group of enemies has their own idea, you see. And it all yeah. put together is a fog. Guess what? Inside each one of us, there's also a crowd. And so this part of us will say this, this part will say that, this will answer this over here, and the next thing you know, the mind is confused because it's in a fog. We don't know which way to go because we've got all this conflicting information. This is where, in fact, Freud and uh, Eric Byrne uh, really began to put things together that, in fact, the crowd that we're in winds up being the parent, the child, and the adult. In the sense that all of the uh, all of the authority stuff, 
that is uh, the basis of the Western society is different, by the way, from the honor system. The honor system means that uh, I'm an honorable man in this honorable town, and if my uh, unhonorable daughter shows herself to be unhonorable, I have got to get my honor back so that I can maintain my status in the community. Okay. Guilt is not like that because guilt always has to do with an authority figure. A mom, a priest, a rabbi, uh, a policeman, a god, but it always, uh, and a boss, especially the boss. That, uh, that, author- that our relationship to the authority is the predominant way that we uh, interact in the West, where in the Mediterranean culture is all about honor. In other words, uh, is my family status and my behavior up to scratch in our society? To where in the West, it has to do with is my honor or is my um, behavior up to the scratch of some ideal uh, authority figure? And then we'll take that ideal authority figure and put it onto the boss, put it onto mom, put it onto the government, put it onto uh, God, put it onto someone like that. But it's still an abstract idea that there is some authority over me. I'm still a child. In other words, Western society is set up so that no one ever grows up. We maintain our, our child position of being under the thumb of some authority, some uh, a society and in the West, we break that down basically into four groups that I call the grab. Government, religion, education, and business. Those are the big dudes that we have as authority figures, our bosses in the business, our uh, teachers and the education, our uh, religious leaders and our police and politicians and whatnot in in business. And we always see ourselves as subservient to those people as opposed to uh, a a wise man will just see them all as just ordinary people going about doing ordinary things. And so we treat them like ordinary human beings. So when you see a cop in uniform, he's not a cop in uniform. He's a man who is delusional enough to think he's a cop. And you would better go along with his delusion. Okay, so this is the right way of looking at it. So it's neither an honor. When when one is noble, he is not, not either not trying to maintain his honor, nor is he trying to grovel in front of an authority figure. That he's so, his own man, and he doesn't compare himself to other people. If he compares himself to other people, he's bound to find something to feel bad about. And so he doesn't compare himself to others. So that's really interesting. So one other topic I wanted to discuss with you today is related to this, which is right attitude. Um, okay. Because I, I've found your injunction to be like a lion, you know, have the attitude of a lion. It's like a little mantra that I have now, and I reflect on that sometimes, you know, and I enjoy thinking about that, Um, you know, and say, 
you know, when I think about sitting to practice, I'll think, well, you can do it. You know, you got this. Just go sit. Go Mm -hmm. do it. You know, and now I don't always follow through on that, you know, um, with various things. So, for example, today I wanted to go for a run. I'd say you can do it. You got this. And then I would just end up not doing it, you know, so, so, but so perhaps that right attitude was not, it it was stable enough to get me to meditate, but it wasn't quite enough to push me to go on my run that I wanted to go on. So I'm curious to hear. Excellent. So you're saying that, that. well, my thoughts are that that's exactly what's going on. Yes. So you're, uh, we could also go to say that right attitude in for the Westerner has to do with coming out of the guilt of being the victim. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That uh, the winner doesn't feel guilty. So what happened was is that you feel I can do this or you went to meditate and then you say I can go for the run and then you didn't go for the run and now you feel guilty because you said you'd go for the run and you didn't go for the run. So there's the guilt. If you'd have right. said, well, I, I, I did want to go on a run, but now I decided I'm not going to go on a run. And you could have kept that main of uh, that uh, lion's attitude. Because hmm. the lion's attitude has nothing to do whether you go for a run or not. It has to do with your attitude. <laughs> sure. And you and you had the right attitude. And then when you didn't go for a run, now you became a victim or uh, you felt guilty again. Your attitude went. You don't have right. to let your. Yeah, don't let. So become aware of that. Recognize when you change your attitude. Sure. Recognize that. Maintain that lion's attitude. Hey, I I got this. Even if I don't want to do it, then I I I have the lion's attitude. I don't want to do it, and I don't do it because I don't <laughs> want to. Even if it's sure. good for me. Even if I said ten minutes ago I'm going to do it because it's good for me. Now I say I don't want to do it, and I'm still a lion. I'm still going to stand by that. Right. So it all depends upon what's happening in this present moment. Lying now, lying the next moment, no guilt now. Even if I didn't do it, I'm still the lion. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's very helpful. That's, that's a, uh, the can-do attitude uh, has nothing to do with whether you actually do it or not. It's still all about attitude. Hmm. So now let's say you do something that not only are you not doing something good, but you're doing something bad. So let's say uh, a minor example might be like what I did the other yesterday, which is I had some, some bad pizza. You know, I had like this, this very unhealthy pepperoni pizza, cheese pizza, you know, that's not really that bad. Let's say if I like, uh, broke into someone's house and stole, you know, like, uh, like their money or something like that, you know, what would the right attitude approach be? Would it be, okay, this wasn't good. I'm going to go put it back and apologize. You know, what would the right, you know, how, how would the right attitude deal with kind of like a more morally worse situation? Um, and the bad pizza is like only a little bit negative. But the breaking into someone's house is very negative. So, yeah, how, how would you deal with these various different situations? Well, or, sorry, I don't know that. about I don't know about the pizza. Let me give you a completely yeah. different example because this is something that's happening right now. Sure. 
Okay, I bought some hard drives on uh, eBay for a while. Then I bought hard drives on Lazada. And it took a while to find out that these, in fact, are fake drives. And the way that I found it out is by getting in touch with the manufacturers and have them look up the serial numbers on these drives. Well, before I had found out that they were bad and uh, uh, I knew that Lazada wasn't going to take them as returns, I put one of the drives on eBay. It was sold made a huge profit I, I i sent it uh to them today i get the uh no wait a minute then what happened was uh once i recognized that the drives were bad i took the drive off of ebay and someone who had been bidding on it uh, uh sent an email saying why what happened? Did you sell it or something? And I said, no, I took it off of eBay because I recognized later that it was, in fact, a fake, a fraud. It was not part of their database. And because of that, I would I took it down. And so the guy then sent him an email back saying, wow, an honest man. Those are rare, unfortunately, but I'm glad to see at least one of them. Okay. So this would be the thing then uh, that if you took something from someone's house, it depends upon whether they know that it was taken or not. If it were if, if they don't know that it was taken, then the right thing to do would be just to put it back. Yeah. But if they know that it was taken, now we have the obligation to present it and give it back to them and deal with it that way but you can deal with it friendly hey i borrowed your shovel and i'm coming back to give it back to you i i hope i didn't cause you any consternation when you're when you realize your shovel was gone okay now that that is not that is not um how to say it uh mollifying or uh making right or fixing in any way the fact that we did wrong in the first place right right that we actually did screw up and so we need to apologize for that but there's no reason to either hide it or to feel guilty or anything like that that once we wake up to recognize that we have done something wrong then we want to set it right even if I did something what we would call consciously wrong, that consciousness was still screwed up. It was not really woke, if you use that word, okay? That we were ignorantly stupid when, we, when our desires were so great that I um, uh, took something out of someone's house. But now that I recognize that I have um, done someone harm, I need to make amends but that doesn't mean that I have to feel bad. That I can apologize and return the object or um, uh, add some addition to it, but doing it in a friendly way. Sure. So, uh, so a couple comments. One is you, the person not knowing it was missing, it's actually better for them to never know that it was stolen because it'll, it's more peace of mind, right? Exactly. Right. 
Okay. So the, the most uh, 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 un-Duca thing that you can do is merely return it before they know that it was missing. Therefore, there's, it, it's like it didn't happen. Sure. But, so, if, but, if it, but they do know that it's missing, uh, they will become suspicious of all kinds of things. And the best thing for you to do is when you return it is to do it in a really friendly way. Sure. Now, rather than feeling say, guilty. If you feel guilty, that will invite them to take on the authoritarian position. Oh, you screwed up. And now I've got to punish you, even if he doesn't want to punish you. We set that top dog, underdog position up if we feel bad. But if we feel good in returning it, now we're automatically back on an equal level of friendship. Sure. So here's here's an actual example from my life. Um, so I was unfaithful to an ex-girlfriend. Um, and I never told her about it. She never knew. We broke up. But I still felt bad about it, even though she never knew. But I, I opted never to tell her because I thought it would hurt her feelings too much if she found out. Almost um, as bad as it hurt you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, but I didn't want to hurt her feelings like that. I, I just okay. thought. Now, here's the thing. Suppose you screwed up like that and yeah. she didn't know it and you didn't either. Then it would have all been okay. Then it would have been all okay. In fact, the only problem with you doing that and screwing up was that you knew it and you knew that it was a screw up. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And she never knew, you know, she never found, you know, but I just didn't and I didn't want to hurt her. So she was spared from that, but I was not. Mm -hmm. And I still feel guilty about it, you know. Um, and I guess I can just let that. I mean, it, it doesn't help me to be feel guilty. You know, it, it's uh, pointless. Well, so you can make the point that, oh, yeah. I see the guilt in that. I see. And so now my position is, is that I'm not going to do that. It's not quite a vow. You wouldn't go so far as to say because vows are often done out of self-hatred. In other words, you hated yourself so much for screwing up like that, that you vow, I will never do that again. And then you do. do yeah. And then you do. Okay. But it's better, much better to see that, wait a minute, I did that. I felt guilty about it. Let me take that into consideration. The next time I'm about to pull my pants down, I can recognize that, hey, this is dangerous. This is really dangerous. Okay. Well, yeah, then you can say there's the dukkha, mm -hmm. you know, and I don't want more dukkha, so I'm not going to do this again. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and That's why I generally that. make the distinction between dangerous and dukkha and call dangerous dangerous is because it may not be dukkha, but it is dangerous because it can because uh, you're in the vicinity of dukkha. Right. Okay, so this is why I call once we can see the dangers in things, then we can find the escape from it. But as always in this present moment, to where the bodhisattva vow or a vow of silence or a vow of chastity or a vow I'll never do that ever again, that sets one up for failure. 
and the yeah, and the here's the point. I and the Bodhisattva is guaranteed failure. Yeah. Well, it also presumes that you exist. Yes, it does. Into the yes. future. Yes, because you're saying that there's some core me that will continue to fulfill this vow. And, yes, and <laughs> you're right. Is, that, I hadn't thought about that. That's an excellent point. Yes, Thank the you. vow assumes a self. And it also assumes that, and I think that's part of the difference between guilt versus, say, honor, right? Or guilt versus good, bad versus good, evil, to use the Nietzschean idea, right? That's one of the differences, is in the good, bad, um, or in the good, in the good, evil, I should say, in the good, evil, you are positing that there's a person there with a soul. There's some permanent entity that is now evil forever, or tainted forever. Right, exactly. You know, whereas if it's just good, bad, you know, there's none of that soul business. You know, it's like this action was good, this one not as good, you know, skillful, unskillful. I see what you're talking about. So good and bad has more to do with this present moment, where good and evil is a pronouncement for a long period of time. Yes, because it posits a soul in an mm, afterlife. Right. And, Once there's something God. is evil, it's always evil. Yes, unless perhaps if it repents to Christ, right, and does so meaning in a meaningful way, you know, mm-hmm. that's the that's the right. salvation, right? But where for for instance, if the uh, um, the automobile mechanic sent his um, apprentice to go get a part out of the parts room. And the, the the student brings back the part for uh, a different car, then that part is bad. It's the wrong part. But the part itself is not evil because that part will go on another car next time. Right. Okay, so it's only bad in this particular moment to where the idea of good and evil has to do then with evil being permanently evil or long-lasting evil. I, I see what you're talking about. That that I can understand. Um, but uh, another way of looking at it is, is both good and bad or good and evil is still judgmental. It is, yes. And well, it, one and is it, much more so than the other, but it still mm-hmm. is, yes. Right. Well, um, in that regard, we could say that the sequence of events could be like this that the feelings of liking and not liking, the feeling of liking ignorantly becomes wanting. Ignorant more, and then it's good in the sense of good and bad, and then ultimately that will go into uh, good and evil. So if I like it, I want it, it must be good, therefore it must always be good, and I don't like it, Therefore, I want to get rid of it. Therefore, it is bad. And therefore, it is bad for all time and therefore evil. So that was one delusion after another delusion after another delusion to get down to the level of uh, evil to where uh, good and bad were only three levels of ignorance as opposed to four. Okay, I like it. Ignorant number one. 
if I'm wise to that, then I can deal with my uh, feeling. But if I don't, then the ignorance will take it to the second, which is uh, I want it. If I want it, ignorance again is I like it. And uh, if I like it, I uh, it's good. And then the next one is good for all time. And so uh, these are various levels of ignorance. But if we can back up, we can recognize, oh, just I like it, therefore I want it. And that's judgments. I want it, I don't want it. If we can bring it back to the level of liking and leave it at that, then I can change my feelings. In other words, just because I like it doesn't mean that I want it. I can just leave it at liking. Or if I don't want, don't like something, I can just leave it at I don't like it, but I don't have to do anything about it. And that's wise. Or a better thing would be is being wise to the not liking, I can change it into liking. Here's an example of that. The child is having a tantrum. Mom does not like the child having a tantrum. So what does mom do when she doesn't like the child having a tantrum? She has one of her own. If you don't shut up, I'm going to slap you. Okay, and so here goes the tantrums, right? But if the mom is wise at that point of contact, when the child starts to tantrum, then mom can change the way she feels from I don't like the child having a tantrum into having compassion for the child. Oh, poor child, what's your problem? And now we can go into nurturing. Because that would be a wise way of handling. I don't like the child in tantrum. I can become joyful instead. So we can actually change the way that we feel. If we are wise to it. But if we are just one layer of ignorance after another layer of ignorance after another layer of ignorance, we wind up having things that are evil and bad for all time. Sure. So a couple of comments. One is a lot of this reminds me of, you know, what Aristotle said, the key to the good life is learning to love your virtues and hate your vices. You know, if you can figure that out, how to do that, you're going to have a, a good life, you know. And that that presumes that you can understand what virtue is. And I, I, I would go so that. far as to changing that in the sense of develop the skill to increase the virtues and to develop the skills to abandon the vices. Right, which might be... Without ever, have, you, without ever having to hate them. Yeah, yeah I was okay. paraphrasing. I don't know the exact quote, but... I was paraphrasing. So hate is maybe too strong. Love may be too strong. But well, hate's said, got a hate's got a really may, definitely may bad quality. I got to yeah. say it this way: hate. I hate hate. <laughs> hate. I hate. Okay. Hate. Hate. Hate's fine. <laughs> it's all good. It's okay. I don't have to hate the virtues or the the vices. I can just come out of them. Yeah. Yeah. I forget what the actual quote was, but it's like cultivate your virtues, diminish your vices, whatever it may be, which is a lot of what this is. Exactly. And we can do that with good feelings. We don't have to hate hate. We don't have to hate our vices. 
we could just see that they're dangerous and to be avoided. We can understand them. Mm-hmm. Understand them. Just like you understand when you're having an off day. Sure. You just understand so, that. And you accept it in the sense so, of nurturing. You don't have to become critical of your off day. Sure. So a couple of questions. So uh, one is, um, um, if you are nurturing yourself on an off day, you think that will generally lead to it not being an off day, generally speaking? Like, do you think that's often the outcome of doing so? Yeah, yeah. But by the, by the way, an, uh, calling it an off day is just being negative, just hating it, rather than just seeing it like it is. That if you see it like it is, then it's, you, you know. I'm feeling tired and lazy today. And that's yeah, okay. I'm tired and I'm tired and lazy today. Yeah, take the day off. So yeah, take the day off. Or maybe I can say I can take the day off, and then four hours later I feel energetic, and so then I can say, well, I'll go do it now. Sure, sure. So uh, my other question was, um, so this is regarding changing your attention. So. When I was sitting today and I was focusing on the mind moments, um, you know, I would notice that they would go all over the place completely. You know, it would be, you know, partly on the breath and then like maybe my cheek and then maybe like some visual thing that I see, you know, like a light or something. And then, you know, and then a thought of what is even all of this, you know, and then this and that, you know, kind of going all okay. over the place. And then, I, being aware of that, I would eventually just return to what you asked me to, to focus on, which is the moments between the thoughts, which is just kind of this show of things happening. Um, and you mentioned in a video that I was listening to today, just enjoy the show. So that's, so I, I, I've, I've been taking that, I'm going to take that to heart tomorrow. I listened to that video after all my sitting today, so I'll Tomorrow, I'll take that one to heart. But uh, the other thing was arising and passing, which I guess is what some of this is, right? Um, mm -hmm. so, um, so, but what's interesting about that is there is, it, is the attention can go from being all over the place to being directed onto something, such as the breath, right? Yes. But if I don't exist, and what is it that is directing that attention? The attention. The attention is directing the attention. Mm-hmm. The attention is just directing itself. The intention is directing the attention. Ah. So now I, now I, this actually provides a lot of insight with respect to why it's so important to cultivate the first jhana, because mm -hmm. that purifies your intention. Yes. Exactly so. Hmm. In this regard, uh, the intention that we're using is the translation of the word uh, uh, sankapa, which it actually is the word for attitude. So you could say that your intention or your attitude 
is directing it because now that's what's what's happening but there's still no permanent self in there it's just a process the human process so and that that process I... is changing the way that you processed last year is not the way that you're processing now now you've got new information new insights new ways of 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 uh, looking at things and so your intention has changed or your attitude has changed if there was a permanent self in there then you wouldn't change your attitude you would be still in fact you could say that when the self is the self is because it is subject to kama Hmm. and the bhikkhu buddha dasa talks about uh kama uh and kama vipaka of the habit patterns of the mind are on and on that gives predestination it gives destiny it gives providence uh and it gives us a future oriented way of looking at things because it's consistent it's consistent because it's uh, a habit pattern it's the samsara it rolls on and on and on and on and on until you wake up and decide you have some choices here you don't have to let it go on automatic pilot doing the same things it used to do because of that you're adding new information to the mix you're putting uh adding to the intention and things begin to change and there's no self there this is the whole quality of that you uh that you have choices in there and that the whole idea of a self or a soul is that it doesn't have any choice okay that the original sin is is that you're a sinner here's christianity for you christianity teaches that there is original sin all have are lost uh and straight away from god um each one in his own direction that uh who were you to be good only god is good and that uh you trying to be good um is always going to fail because of the original sin therefore you can't get out of it on your own you need help and we have this magic plastic jesus on the dashboard here and all you have to do is to suck up to this plastic jesus on the dashboard and thou shalt have eternal life that's the stick only this plastic magic jesus is expensive he comes with a plate okay and so this is the religion of christianity in a way you could say that christianity only works because of their magical story to where the uh within buddhism we have a lot of magical stories about the buddha but we don't need any of those magical stories in order to get the value out of the teaching of the buddha in a way you could go so far as to say that no one needs any of the magic of the christian story and still if they did according to what jesus said they would take great benefit right but it's the magic story that winds up being the predominant issue and the magic story is is that you can't fix yourself you need our whoop to do plastic magic jesus right 
And in Buddhism, we have it exactly opposite of that. You don't need no magic plastic Jesus. You need to, to change what's on the inside. So one has a soul, and that soul is not capable of, um, of repairing itself. It was broken from the very beginning, original sin. It cannot be good. Only God is good, they say. Isn't that interesting now? Okay, so if we in fact don't have that self, if we don't have that broken soul, that means that we are not subject to the to the laws of that uh, of that soul. We are, we are not bound by the cause and effect of our karma. That we are not in fact originally broken from original sin, because that whole concept doesn't exist. There is no self there. Therefore, you as a human being can make choices and can change your personality. Your personality is not fixed. You are not your personality. Yes. You are whatever your intentions are, and you can change your intentions by changing your attitude and changing your thoughts. Sure. So, quick question on that, and it's getting quite late, and I heard, so, yeah, it's 1 a.m. now. We've been going for almost three hours. <laughs> Uh, two and a half at least. Okay. Yeah. So um, one last this question. Been, this has been great, though. This has been great, though, as always. Um, so this might lead to another question, but that's fine. I guess we'll just roll with it for a moment. But so regarding the intention that directs the attention. So mm. what caused the intention to arise was uh, was. The, the things I was seeing, the rising and passing, right? Mm -hmm. And then that caused the question of, you know, what should I focus on to arise? And then it, it, it went to the breath, right? Or it went to just watch the whole show, just let it be, you know, mm -hmm. um, or whatever was, was going on at that time. Um, so I guess part of my question is, um, I remember learning this in Wat Cham Tong all those years ago as well, that I believe the teacher said it goes perception leads to thought, which leads to word, which leads to action. Um, no. Okay. So, no. yeah, it might be I misremember. Perception it, leads to thought, which leads to bad feelings, which leads to dukkha. Oh, got it. Perception leads to thought, which leads to emotion, which leads to action, right? Is that a perception? Yeah, but the action is the action has nothing to do in the way that they think. Whoever said that is not looking at really what's going on. It does not necessarily lead to action. Sure. Sure. Well, yeah, it doesn't always lead to action, but like that's just the train if it does lead mm -hmm. to action. Is that? But, it can't. But the action is often always in response to dukkha. If there's no dukkha, there's no action. So he's missing an, uh, an important ingredient in there. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't remember that one. I think, yeah, that was incorrect, I guess. But So, well, you could have wholesome action, too. Yes, absolutely. So you could have a perception, like, say, I perceive my dog is hungry. And then I have the thought, or I perceive <laughs> the thought of that, and then I have the thought, okay, I need to feed my dog, I, or maybe some emotion of desire to do that arises, 
and then I, I take the action to feed my dog, which is a wholesome action, right? Okay. Okay. But so, but you might. But how you action. feed the dog can be duka or not duka. You can feed the dog and be angry enough, upset and 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 pissed off at the dog, or you can feed the dog happily. Right. Okay, so like, the action of yeah. feeding the dog still has to do with whether there's dukkha or not in it. Yeah. We'll talk about this at a later time. You're right, it's getting late, and uh, there's stuff to do, and I got another caller. And, All uh, right, sure. I'm going to go to well, bed, and we can finish this off at a later time. Because basically what you're talking about is you're getting into the depths of Paticca Samuppada about actually how the mind works. And we'll talk about that later. If I can get you to be quiet and listen long enough, I can <laughs> give it to you. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Well, All righty, well, we'll see you later. Yep, thanks so much. All right, uh, talk to you later.